0: Well, good morning, church. A uh, warm welcome to those of you joining us online and if this is your first time visiting with us and especially warm welcome to you. My name is Ash. I've had the privilege of being on staff here for a few years and as most, if not hopefully all of you know, that's coming to a close rather quickly here in just a few Sundays. And this morning will actually be my last time getting to sort of lead you in worship and sharing God's word. And so just on behalf of Matt and I and our family, we want to say thank you. Um, Thank you uh, to Coming alongside our family, I when I think about this church body, I think about um, having my babies here, um, and you all greeting us and bringing us meals and being gracious to us as we stepped into being parents. And so, thank you for that. And then, the other thing I want to say is thanks for helping us grow as ministry leaders. Um, We are young people um, seeking to grow in our discipleship to the Lord, and you all have encouraged us, challenged us. You've trusted us to take your kids into international countries, so thank you. Um, thanks for believing in us when we filled a room in Geneva with foam alongside our friends Kyle Rohan and and Matt and I. Thanks for um, really just giving us the world in terms of getting to do ministry here in this corner of Boulder. We really are grateful to you all. So thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> thanks. So this morning, we're continuing on in our series entitled Square One, where we're looking at the book of Acts, which is really the story of the first church. And we're looking at sort of the formation of this church because turns out it didn't come with an instruction manual, but instead it was a bunch of men and women who were sort of zealous for the Lord, trying to figure out what does it look like to live in community, grow in their apprenticeship to Christ, and tell the world. And I think there's a lot for us to learn. And so we've really leaned into that these last several weeks of pulling different things that we go, this applies to us as we seek to be a church in 2022 in downtown Boulder. And this morning is no different. We actually get to look at one of the most... Arguably, scholars have said one of the most impactful passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It's in Acts 9. It's the story of our friend Saul of Tarsus. And so this morning, I'd love for us, what I love about this particular story is that it's a narrative. That there's story and characters and people involved. And the main character is one that you and I have a lot to owe to. That really there's a good chance that Grace Commons doesn't exist if this man doesn't have this radical interaction with Christ on the road to Damascus. And so I think we have a lot to learn from our friend Saul this morning. So what I'd love to do is sort of read our text, uh, commentate a little bit on it, and then pull out one or two, maybe three things that I feel like are important for us to learn for today. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in together. God, thanks for for Saul. Thanks for meeting him uh, on the road to Damascus. And thanks that we get to sit in this beautiful place in Boulder, Colorado, and minister and talk about you in our life. So we pray that just you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive what you would want for us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the text starts like this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I'm going to pause there for just a second so that I can sort of introduce you to my friend Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. He was a member of the religious elite. He was highly educated. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was sort of feared by the disciples. He was a bit like the nightmare of the growing church. Um, Often the disciples were living in fear of him. He was likely to be at the stoning of Stephen, perhaps being someone who sort of okayed and endorsed that. Um, And at this point, he had made his life's mission— was to go about finding those who belonged to the way, or sort of Christianity, bringing them back to Jerusalem to be arrested and imprisoned. And you can see in the text that he says he was breathing out murderous threats. This guy was for real. He was convinced that what he knew in terms of his understanding of Scripture of religion, of what was true, was that this sect of disciples and what they were trying to accomplish was wrong. It was a threat. And so he had took it upon himself to go, I'm going to imprison them. And Saul becomes Paul. So I'll often probably mix those two terms out of just Um, those two names up just in, my brain is a little bit foggy. I have two young children. Give me some grace. But um, so if I say Paul, it's Saul, okay? Uh, It's the moral of the story. But Paul goes on to write much of the New Testament. And in um, the letter to the church in Philippi, he says this about himself, which I think is really eye-opening for us of who he thought he was. It says this, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I read that and I go, wow, he's a little bit arrogant. Um And what I sense is, friends, we don't become a persecutor unless we are deeply convinced that we know what's right and we're clear about what's wrong. And Saul was under the impression of what he understood the world to mean, that what he was doing was actually to benefit God. He was convinced of that. And he was convinced that he was 100% right. He was probably riding into Damascus a little bit on his high horse, convinced that what he was going to do was going to serve the living God. There was no way that this Jesus that had just come, died, resurrected, and returned was the Messiah. Saul couldn't put his brain around that. And so he began to, you know, persecute. But what I want us to know is that often we look at characters like Saul and we go, you know, we're not like him because we're not persecuting Christians in Boulder or around the world. Certainly we have a life's mission to do the opposite of that. But I think we can see that the spirit of Saul, that spirit of I'm 100% right and you are wrong can be alive and well in us. And it can be a dangerous one if we're not careful. And so, something just for us to be aware of as we dive in this morning. The story continues on, and it says He neared Damascus on his journey. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. So what we have here now is Saul and the men traveling with him, very confused, alarmed, and stuck in Damascus, Damascus, blind and not eating anything. And I imagine that they're sort of trying to make sense of what just happened to us And so I'm going to sort of paraphrase the next part of the story because I want to really focus on those first nine verses, but the next part is important because it's, you know, what happens with our friend Ananias. And so what happens is um, just up the road in Damascus, um, there's a disciple named Ananias and he is sitting there and all of a sudden he hears the Lord speak to him and tell him to go find Saul of Tarsus. And that Saul is having a vision or he's he's being told that Ananias is going to come to his house, pray for him, and that his sight will be restored. And if you're anything like me, if I was Ananias, I would be like, you know, last I heard about that Saul of Tarsus guy was he's here to arrest people like me. Um, I'm not interested in going to Saul of Tarsus's sort of house currently and helping him because that could just be a ploy for me to end up in prison. And so Ananias sort of pushes back on the Lord and goes, "You know, I don't, I don't particularly care to do that." And the Lord quickly fires back at Ananias this great line, and it says this, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I think we still see Ananias kind of pause, because I read that and I go, he's going to go proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Friends, I don't think, you know, the most impactful missionaries go from being the persecutors to then going and telling and spreading the gospel to the most lost people. And so Ananias, I think, is going, am I hearing things correctly? Have I lost my mind? Is this really how God is going to change the world is through this guy who really, I think, is here to arrest me? But we see Ananias get brave and he goes to the house, he lays hands on Saul and tells him that Jesus has sent him. And something like scales fall off of his eyes immediately. He gets up, he gets baptized, eats, and sort of begins his ministry never to be the same. And I think there's a lot that we can learn in this story. And I would actually recommend that you spend some time in it. Luke sort of records this story three times in Acts. He talks about it in Acts 9, in what I just read. He talks about it in Acts 22, and then again in Acts 26. Not to mention, Saul becomes Paul, and Paul has a lot of thoughts about what happened on the road to Damascus. And so there's a lot that we can sort of learn and glean about this story. And I'm just going to pull out three things that are sort of blaring at me this morning. But I would encourage you to really spend some time thinking about this man where grace and truth intersected his life and it changed the world forever. And so this morning, the first thing I want us to look at is transformation is a journey, not a destination. That makes a great magnet for like your, your refrigerator. You might already have it. Somebody else probably already said it. But arguably, I think people could look at this story on the road to Damascus and go, oh, this is sort of the top of Paul's sort of spiritual transformation. But what we know about him is he began his journey here and it was full of ups and downs. But that this was just the beginning for Saul. That he had so much more to lean into and grow. And that he doesn't have this one sort of life changing moment and then just go, you know what, I'm done. Instead, it launches him into this journey of transformation. And what we know is if you keep reading in Acts, people are skeptical about him. Rightfully so, right? If you have a reputation of being a persecutor and you've sort of done that well, and now all of a sudden you're telling people about this crazy encounter you've had with Christ and trying to get them to understand the power of the gospel, those two things conflict a little bit. It's like one day you were an Ohio State fan and now you're a Michigan fan. Like I don't get that. Um, I had to, I had to. You know, there's a bye week this week. Um, But anyways, it doesn't make sense. And there's skepticism. But what I see here is people sort of asking the question, did he actually change or is this just a facade? Which I think people are asking about Christians all the time. Are they actually different or is it just a facade? And I think we can learn something from that because Saul's entire life changed not just part of it. He didn't just change his behavior. Every way he oriented his life was different. And so when I think about that, I think sometimes we can get caught in being people who want to reform people in the church, not transform. So let's look at the definition of reforming people really quick. It says to bring about change in someone so that they no longer behave in an immoral, criminal or self-destructive manner. And then if we look at the definition of transform, it says to make a thorough or dramatic change in the form, appearance, or character of. Friends, my deepest hope and prayer for Grace Commons is that you would be a people who transform lives, not just reform them. Transforming people requires character change, and character change takes time. It's not an instantaneous thing. Think about parenting. You're parenting for the long game, not just in the moment, but you're trying to make these tiny humans into great followers and kind people of Jesus. And that takes time, it takes work, it's laborious, it's frustrating. But it's not about changing behaviors. It's not about getting stuck in immorality, but it's about introducing people to the grace and truth of Jesus Christ so that they will never be the same. And I think sometimes we can get caught up on being a people who care about reforming people. And I really do hope that we see Saul as an example of he wasn't just reformed. He was transformed and he changed the world. And like I said, spiritual transformation is sort of a long journey. John Ortberg has this great quote that has just sort of stuck with me. It says, I hate how hard spiritual transformation is and how long it takes. I hate thinking about how many people have gone to church for decades and remain joyless or judgmental or bitter or superior. Friends, if we have judgment or bitter or superiorness in us, then I go, gosh, we need Christ to transform us. We need joy and life to be alive in us. And then, secondly, what I think we can learn this morning that's super encouraging to me is that God can save anyone. You know, if we think back to that verse that I read from Philippians where Paul is sort of talking about himself, he was like, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. There's all of this scripture in sort of Paul's letters where he talks about himself as he was the worst sinner. He was the worst of them all. And yet God met him. And what I love about this story in particular is sometimes we get caught up in that we have these conversions around us or even we think about the time that we met Christ and we go, you know, we found Christ. We began to follow him. And what I see so clearly in this story was Saul wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus wanted everything to do with him. And he went and found Saul And so it wasn't Saul found Christ, but Christ found Saul. And that to me is so encouraging because I have people in my life who I go, I do not have any frame of mind to understand how Christ will intersect their life. And we were sort of studying this piece of scripture and acts as a whole in preparation for um, this sermon series as a pastor and department head. Um, And my good friend, Carl, when we got to Acts 9, I'm going to paraphrase him. So if I misspeak, I'm sorry. He had this comment that has just stuck with me for months. It was this. It was something to the effect of Jesus returned to minister to Saul because no one else had had any sort of success. You know, something to that. Like, Saul needed, he needed to have an actual physical encounter with the living Christ in order to believe that it was worth to give his life to it. And that's what makes this story so impactful that I'm certain perhaps people had tried to convince Saul that, you know, this Jesus really was the Messiah. And he was like, I want no part of it. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'll come. I'll show you. I'll change your whole world. And that to me gives me so much hope because I get stuck on what's my role and how do I change people? And actually my part is super small and Jesus has the profound long-term impact. He can redeem anybody. And that should be encouraging and good news to us. If you find yourself discouraged this morning because you have knocked on the door of your neighbor, of your son, of your grandson, of your daughter, of whoever, for a long time and they've never answered, I would go, gosh, this should be a great hope to you. And I hope that you'll keep knocking. And my last point is this. It's kind of catchy, so, you know, go with me here. Persecutor, preacher, persecuted. Three piece. Um, Persecutor, You might go, you know what, I don't really consider myself a persecutor, Ash. That's not really on my list of things that I find myself doing. And certainly I don't think anyone here is doing it to the extent that we saw Saul doing it. But I think if we take a good, long, hard look in our hearts, we can easily have a persecutory bend. Jesus very clearly says to Saul, he says, why do you persecute me? And I'm certain that the disciples, when they were sort of talking about Saul of Tarsus, they were talking about how they were persecuting them. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. There's no distance between me and my people. You persecute my disciples, you persecute me. You persecute my church, you persecute me. And I think sometimes we get caught up in this sort of reforming people and we want behaviors to change. And it becomes about immorality, immorality, and this is the right way and this is the wrong way. And I think subtly in our hearts, we begin to persecute brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you go, you know, I can't really swallow that pill, Ash. I'm not, I'm not here for it. Fine. I think we can all readily agree that we have sin in our life that is in need for us to repent. And I think repentance is the beginning of this spiritual transformation journey that I've talked about. And it's one of the most crucial We have to own and be okay with the fact that we have a need for Christ. Because I don't think we become a preacher unless we become clear that we need the grace of Jesus Christ. So when we can repent and say, I am in need of something greater than myself, then I think we have something to talk about. We have good news for people. And so we see Saul, begin to become clear of he needed to begin his journey of spiritual transformation with repenting for what he had done. And it's the same for you and me. And I think when we get clear about that, we actually get to receive the good news and it feels like good news and we become preachers and you go, I'm not a preacher, Ash, but I think my hope is that you have had an encounter with Christ that has left you with, I cannot help but tell people about him. And you might not stand from a stage to tell people about him. But I hope that in coffee dates and breakfasts and walks and time in our city that you find yourself compelled to tell people about the good news and grace of Christ. It should launch us into preacher mode. I remember being a high school student. And I had come to know the Lord in high school, and um, I had a pretty profound transformation. I, I, I like was going 180 degrees south, and something sort of intersected my life, and I started going 180 degrees north. And I remember being in my high school gym shooting free throws with um, a friend, because that's what you do at basketball practice. And I had had such a transformation, and I felt like who Jesus was was so important that every girl that got stuck shooting free throws with me, got to hear the gospel. Because I was like, you have, have you heard this story? Do you know it? Oh my gosh, let me tell you about it. And I felt so compelled to become this preacher. And I wasn't preaching on a stage, I was just doing it on a basketball court in Maumee, Ohio in 2005. And friends, you too can be a preacher. You too have a transformation story that should be inspiring to you. And if you've forgotten about it, go back and think about it. Your life should be different. And then lastly, and perhaps most controversially, persecuted. There's this great verse in Timothy, and by great terrifying verse in Timothy, it says this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, I think we live in a space that allows us to have a very sort of comfortable faith. Certainly, we can think of mission partners and missionaries across the globe who don't get to gather as freely as you and I do, that they truly are escaping death to proclaim the good news of Christ, and that is just not our story, that we sort of get to... Worship and celebrate the resurrected Jesus in a way that is free. But it's clear when we look at Saul's life, when we look at the disciples life, when we read scripture, that we are to encounter some level of persecution. And when I've thought about this for myself personally, I think what I've gotten hung up on is I don't find myself often persecuted because I don't put myself in situations that would bring on persecution. I play small. I get afraid. I won't have the conversation because I'm afraid of the persecution. Maybe it's just me, but I think I have friends here. Um, And I realized that, you know, the Damascus Road incident could have happened and that Saul could have gone home and never really told anyone about it. He could have just, one, kept... You know, persecuting Christians, but perhaps he had enough sense knocked into him that he said, "You know, I'm not going to do that anymore." But I'm certainly not going to go tell people about this because that would be sort of one, eliciting probably persecution, but then two, a little bit embarrassing. But Saul does the exact opposite. It says that he sort of spent several years sort of growing in his discipleship with Christ, and then he gets launched into one of the most persecuted ministries in Scripture's history. He doesn't go underground. He doesn't live in fear. Certainly he was probably afraid, but he puts that aside and he goes, this is more important. And I think I would be remiss this morning if as we look at this story, I didn't at least ask the question of us, does our faith bring about some level of persecution? And like I said, mine doesn't, but this story has compelled me to be a little bit more risky to sort of trend into dangerous waters, to have conversations that have been scary. Because I truthfully believe that Jesus is the answer. And if I believe that, friends, then I should feel compelled to become a preacher. And so my friends, my prayer for us this morning is that we too would think about our own genuine encounter with Christ. And that we would be a people who live transformed. And that we would land in waters that feel dangerous and risky and even persecuted at times. So let me pray for us and we'll continue on in worship this morning. Lord, thank you that you are a good God and that you meet us in extravagant in crazy ways. Thanks that you seek to have us transformed, to change our characters, to help us to look more like you. I pray that this church would be a place of transformation. We ask for you to come alive in our hearts and in our spirit. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.